Well, we are in a short new sermon series. This is week two. We're calling Word for Word, where I am. Uh, we are zooming in together, deep diving into the scriptures to learn how we might study them for ourselves uh, and how we might uh, get all of the meat off of the bone out of the word for us. If you have ever eaten wings with Nathan Mabry, you already know what I'm talking about, that when you see the scraps, there is no meat left on the wings, zero. Uh, he doesn't leave any on him at all. When we study the Bible, we want to read it not fast, not big chunks. I read 10 chapters a day because that will leave us not really retaining or understanding what we've read and leaves a lot of meat on the bone that would actually be nourishing to our souls. And so we don't want to leave it there. So this series is meant to show us that we can deep dive into one or a couple of verses, into small chunks, and find lots of meat that we might study and nourish our souls with. Philippians 4.13 is one of the most popular verses in the entire Bible. It is on coffee mugs. It is on t-shirts. It is even on the black tape that athletes put under their eyes. It is one of the most popular verses, and yet simultaneously is probably one of the most misunderstood verses in the entire Bible. Because it is used out of context. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so we read this and we think, oh, this means I can throw that touchdown pass when the game's on the line. This means that when I'm scared and nervous to ask that girl to the prom, I can do it through Christ's strength. This means that when I didn't study for that exam, I can still do it through Christ's strength. It means, I don't know, that I can buy a lottery ticket and, and, and think Christ's strength is going to make me win it or something. We, we apply it all kinds of ways. Whatever I need in whatever moment, Christ's strength will come and help me accomplish that thing. And the mistake we make in misunderstanding is what this all things refers to. I can do all things because we take the verse out of context because we look at just verse 13 and not what's around it. We take all things to mean what it seems to mean when we read just that verse. And that means it's everything. I can do all things. I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me. But we said last week that context is, context is king, and so we got to look at the context. If you'll, when the Bible was written, it did not have chapters and verses. I don't know if you knew that. Paul did not write chapter 4, verse 1, da 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 He didn't write it that way. Those were added much, much later. Because the Bible was not meant to be picked apart into little sections. Paul wrote a letter. Right, he wrote a letter to the church in Philippi, and the letter is meant to be taken as a whole, understanding its parts only in the context in which those parts find themselves. The context of the entire letter and particularly the immediate context of the verses surrounding it. So this morning we want to seek to understand Philippians 4.13 correctly and accurately by looking at the context and knowing what is this promise that God has given us. What is this promise that we can do all things through him, through Christ, who strengthens me. 
My goal this morning is twofold. One, it is to show you how to read your Bible. Now, understand I've done a lot of the pre-work, and so you're not going to get to go completely into the kitchen to see how the sausage is made, but you're going to get a general idea. And two, it is to help you understand what God is saying in this promise of Philippians 4.13. So first, let's read the whole thing in context. We're going to look at verses 10 through 13 this morning. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, let's look at it. Let's dig in. He says, I rejoiced. Be a big word right here. I rejoice, and what did he rejoice in? The Lord. And he did it greatly. I rejoice in the Lord greatly. That now at length you have, now notice this, revived your concern for me. What is he talking about? What is it that the Philippians did for Paul? What, what concern did they revive? What did they do? Well, if you, if you were to skip down and go to verse 18, just a few verses later, you would see that he says, I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. You see, the Philippians sent Paul a gift of money and resources to aid him in his ministry, even though Paul is writing this letter from prison. They still are sending money to support Paul in his ministry endeavors. And so they send this gift. You see, this rejoicing in the Lord greatly is an expression of Paul's gratitude and just Paul pouring out his heart greatly. He wants the Philippians to know how thankful he is for them. And he wants to have this authentic overflow of his heart of love and affection and gratitude toward the Philippians. He wants them to know what is in his heart for them. And if you go on a little bit, he even begins to gush even more over them. And it's an example to us that, that we should model. Ryan recently in a sermon said something I thought was quite helpful. He said that we're really good at showing honor and telling people how we feel about them. We're really good at lavishing love and praise on people. We just do it too late because we do it when they're dead at their funeral. And we need to do it sooner. And so Paul does that. And on the one hand, Paul is pouring out his heart unguarded to them. I rejoice in the Lord greatly now that at length you've revived your concern for me. But he's aware, he's aware that when he says that, his words could potentially be misunderstood. He wants to say this thing to them, but, he wants to, but he's aware in the back of his mind that when I say this, they might take it the wrong way. But that potential misunderstanding doesn't stop him from speaking the thing he needs to say, from overflowing his heart and gratitude for them. That potential misunderstanding doesn't stop him but it does prompt him to address these potential misunderstandings. There are two possible ways you might read this and misunderstand what Paul is saying. And so he takes the time, the parchment, the ink, the energy to parry these potential misunderstandings. 
The first misunderstanding is when the Philippians read the words at length, you have revived, you have revived your concern for me. They might have been offended. They might have heard that and go, Oh, Paul, you think we've been neglecting you this whole time? I'm sorry that it's been so long since we've done anything for you. They might have heard that and been, been offended by what Paul was saying. That Paul thought that they were neglecting him. And Paul was saying, oh, I'm, I'm glad you started to pitch in again. It's about time. They might have thought that's what he was saying. And so Paul wants to make sure that they don't think he thinks that. And so what does he do? He says, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. You, I know you were concerned for me. I know you, you still cared for me. And I also understand you had nobody to bring it. You didn't have an Epaphroditus at the time to bring me anything, to care for me. You had no opportunity for, to, to show your concern for me. We don't have to look, but in this verse, and the verses preceding that we're not going to look at, where Paul gushes on the Philippians, and he wants to make sure that they don't have this misunderstanding. The second possible misunderstanding is this. They might have saw Paul's rejoicing in the Lord, this is greatly rejoicing, and they might conclude, oh, I know why Paul's so happy. I know why Paul has so much joy, rejoicing in the Lord. I know why he's so happy. Because he's in it for the money. He's in it for the money. And so Paul wants to make sure that nobody can think that. And so what does he do? He says, not, not that I am speaking of being in need. <laughs> I don't want you all to think that I've been in need. I want you to know that I'm content. Right? I want you to know I am content whether that means I'm brought low, whether that means I'm facing hunger, whether that means I'm in need, I want you to know I am content and it's not about the money for me. He wants to make it clear that nobody can think that. He says what's on his heart, what he wants him to hear, but he takes great care to make sure he's understood correctly. Here's the first thing I want you to understand. A mature Christian not only says what is in their heart, but also takes the appropriate care to discern how he might be heard correctly. Mature Christians should speak the truth. Often, maybe that's an encouraging word, or maybe that is a word of rebuke or challenge, which we should also give. We should speak the truth, but we must do so with care to make sure that we are understood correctly. Too often we speak way too quickly, we speak off the cuff, we speak out of our passions and our emotions without thinking, without taking the care, we don't think about our body language, we don't think about the way our face looks and our eyes look, we don't think about our tone and how our tone of voice might be perceived from those other people, and our words are communicating, and our body language and our tone and everything is communicating maybe something we didn't intend to. Because we do not often take such care with how we speak, like Paul is here, we hurt people without realizing it and without intending to. Every one of us in this room have communicated things and hurt people based off your body language 
based off your tone, and you've hurt people or alienated people, and you never knew it or intended it. So like Paul here, we need to take great care to speak and to communicate what needs to be said, the truth, to not hold back what needs to be said, but to do it with the care and precision that it deserves to make sure we are heard and understood correctly. I think that is a good word for us to heed as we seek to grow in maturity in Christ. Now, we move on to the crux of the argument. The argument Paul is making is that his joy, right, rejoice, his joy, is not dependent upon money or gifts or aid. It is not dependent upon circumstances, whether things are going well or poorly, but that his joy is in the Lord, and that brings about contentment. So let's look at it, right? His joy, his rejoicing is in the Lord. Not, look at verse 11, not that I am speaking of being need, for I've learned, important word here, whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to go purple, abound. And any and every circumstance... Look at that. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. When we take this all things, all things right here, when we take this in Philippians 4.13 out of context, What are we typically doing? We're talking about the touchdown pass. We're talking about whatever strength we need in whatever moment. And we think this all things refers to the abounding and the abundance and the plenty. That's not what he's saying. Notice you've got these these negative things, right? You've got brought low. You've got hunger. You've got need. Don't judge my, my letters. And then you've got these positive things. You've got abounding. You've got plenty. You've got abundance. And it's all of those things. When we take all things out of context, we see that the strength is here to help us do only these positive things. I can throw the touchdown pass. I can crush the job interview I'm going to. I can, I can do anything with, through a verse taken out of context. I can do whatever I want. I want. That's not what Paul is communicating. The all things refers not to only the positive things, but What? Whatever situation, every circumstance, it's positive and negative. It's good and bad. It's the highs and the lows. it's, It's this. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can be content, right? I can be content in all circumstances because Jesus will give me the strength to be content in all circumstances, whether they're going well or poorly, whether they're going great or bad. Here's the big idea of the verse. We're going to just give it to you from at the top. Joy in the Lord, rejoice, right? Joy in the Lord produces contentment regardless of circumstance. Joy in the Lord produces contentment in us no matter what's going on in my life, no matter if I'm up or down, high or low, regardless of circumstances. In every situation, joy that is in the Lord produces contentment no matter what the situation I am in. 
All right, so now what we want to do is zoom in on this main idea. This is the main idea. This is the big nugget of this verse. Now we want to zoom in on that and understand it further. Now I want you to notice what he says. We're going to look at verse 11 kind of on. Now that I am speaking, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be, all right, here's our word, content. I know how to, I know how. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. And in every circumstance, I have learned secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things to him that gives me strength. So how or what is this secret that Paul has learned to be content? What is the secret? How has he learned that he might know how to be content? Four things I think we see in the text. The first, what is the secret that he has learned to be content in any and all and every circumstance? Well, the first clue is here in the very end. I can do all things through him strengthens me. First clue is this word strength. That I am doing this not in my strength. Not in your strength. It's not my ability. It's not from within me and God's just pulling it out of me. It is a strength that Jesus has that he gives to you. It is a supernatural gift. It is a miracle of the Holy Spirit at work within you to give you strength when you face hunger or when you face the loss of a job or when you face the loss of income or when you face going to war or when you face bad news, when you face difficult days. When you face good days, it is a strength from the Lord given to you to produce contentment. Jesus lends you this strength to be content in the Lord and face those days with peace and joy instead of facing these days that are hard or we're not content, instead of facing them with anxiety, instead of facing them with depression, instead of facing them with fear. And worry and regret and envy and jealousy of we want I want what you have. Instead of getting on social media and always be looking at what everyone else has and what else what what is going on in everybody else's life and wanting that and being jealous of that and wishing that was your life, instead of facing the days like that, the strength of Jesus gives you a peace and a contentment and joy that whatever situation or circumstance you find yourself in, you're content. You're at peace. It is Christ in you that grants you strength to face every day with contentment. It's his strength. So, the secret to contentment, one, look to Jesus for strength. Look to Jesus for strength. Now, the second thing I want us to clue in on is this word contentment. The second clue is found in the word contentment itself. Now, I know 99% of you in this room do not know uh, Greek, right? Why would you? But the point I'm about to make, I want you to understand that you could still figure this out on your own. Both through the context and a basic understanding of theology, but the Greek does take us to another layer. This is where good commentary would be helpful. If someone told me this morning they brought a commentary. Like they're checking me right now while I'm preaching. They're making sure I'm right. I love it. A good commentary is helpful to you so that you might go deeper. A book of theologians who've written to help you understand the text. 
But I want you to understand also how you can understand the Greek for yourself, even though you don't know it. You can go to this website, BibleHub.com, and you'll see these little boxes at the top and click on Strong's. And then search a word. You're studying this for yourself, and you get to this word contentment. You're like, hey, you know what? I want to understand what this word means a little bit more. I can go to BibleHub.com and go to Strong's and look at the word, look up the verse, pick the word, and it's going to tell me. And what's it going to tell me that the word content means in the Greek? It means self-sufficient. That means self-sufficient. And then this fascinating thing happens. You keep reading, and it says it's from two words. It's from autos and archaea. Then you could go look up what those two words mean. And what you would learn is autos means I, and archaeo means strength. And so you get, it's self-compliance. It is self-strength. When you read this word contentment, it is I am strong. It is self-strength. Now here's where the commentary is going to be helpful to you when you're studying this. It's going to give you the historical significance of this word. You see, this word, Paul is using intentionally because it was a word used by Greek Stoic philosophers. The Stoic philosophers believed that all emotion was bad. That you had to rule over with an iron fist, all, with all of your strength, your emotions. That you had to be so strong that no matter what happened in your life, you would rule over your emotions. That you would never show fear or anxiety or jealousy or, or envy or sadness or joy or glee or anything. You're emotionless. You conquered them. So why would Paul use this word, knowing the cultural baggage that it would have for his readers? Because it could sound like Paul is saying, contentment is found through secular philosophy. Contentment is found through secular ideas and philosophy. Or it could sound like contentment is found through the power of positive thinking. That through your own strength, like the Stoics, you can have this too. This is not Christian. This is not a Christian idea. So what is Paul doing? He is turning this cultural idea on its head. He knows his readers would have, this word would have clued them in on something. He's turning this idea on its head. He is saying, you've heard the Stoics say that you can find contentment through your own strength. You can find self-sufficiency and rule over your emotions and your responses to the world. You can rule over those things. You can have the strength to rule over that and be content. Self-rule. If you're just strong enough and positive enough, you can remain emotionlessness through anything. But I'm here to tell you, Paul is saying, I'm here to tell you, contentment is possible. Contentment is possible only through someone else. Contentment is possible not through your strength, through him. Through him who strengthens. It's not like the Stoic philosopher said. It's not through your own willpower and your own strength that you can muster up this emotion-killing strength and face all the days with contentment. No, it is contentment through Jesus' strength. But also learn that when we look at this, we see this auto right here, this I, and it tells us that even though it's Jesus' strength, I'm a part of it, Right? That I'm a part of it. That it's his strength played out through me. It's his strength acting through me. Right? You see, you cannot just lay in your bed, do nothing, and bam, God just lavishes contentment on you. You you didn't do anything. You just laid there and bam, now you're content. That's not how it works, right? Paul says, he's learned the secret. He learned 
how to do it, how to be content. Meaning he plays a role in it. See, Jesus may create the miracle of contentment, but I act it out. I live it out. God just isn't zapping away my anxiety, but through his strength, as I struggle, as I fight, as I pray, as I soak myself in the scriptures, and I pray some more and fight, he grants me strength to find contentment and frees me from anxiety, frees me from envy, frees me from comparing myself to other people and what they have and what I don't have. He gives me the strength, but, but strength has to be wielded. He gives me the strength, but the strength has to be wielded. I can be super strong, but if I never use my strength to pick anything up, my strength is useless. God has given you strength to be content, but you, you have to fight for it. You have to work toward it. You have to pray toward it. You don't just lay in bed with your Bible closed and never opening your mouth in prayer, and bam, God gives you contentment. Just like God doesn't just kill your sin when you don't do anything or answer your prayers that you've never prayed. He doesn't do that. He gives you the strength, but you've got to use strength. You see, the secret to contentment, you have to look to Jesus for strength, and you have to use his strength to fight for it. You've got to use his strength to fight for it. You're a part of this process. This promise of God to give you contentment through his strength is not so spiritual that it is this thing that is going to come over you and you're going to go up in a, you know, a, be in a trance and whatever. Notice what he says. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned. In whatever situation I am to be content. I have learned the secret. This promise of God to contentment, to joy in him that leads to contentment, and his strength is not so spiritual, not so supernatural as to not require mental learning and knowledge. You don't get saved and bam, all of a sudden you have contentment. You don't come to Jesus and bam, you know the secret. You got to learn it. So what do you have to learn? Well, when you're studying this and you're reading this, your first thing should be, you say, oh, I've got to learn it, so where am I going to learn it? Well, let's look and see if Paul has said anything in the rest of this letter that would have taught us how to be content. And so what you need to do is not be in a hurry. Not go, ha, I ain't got time for that. i got to finish Philippians. No, no, no. Slow down. Say, maybe Paul, if I've got to learn this, maybe Paul's taught it. And so let's go back to chapter 1 and let's read it again slower. And let me highlight everything that I read that might help me be content. So I did that. I went back and I went through the whole book and I highlighted everything that I thought would aid me in my fight for contentment. And I came up with 14 verses. And we're not going to go through all of them. You're welcome. But we are going to go through one from each chapter. Just to give you an example. So, Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work... In you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. No matter what I'm facing, good or bad, God is at work in my life. He started something. He began a good work. And he'll bring it to completely, in completion. I can rest knowing God is at work no matter if I'm high or low. That helps me in contentment. That's part of the thing I need to learn. God has begun it. He will finish it. Look at chapter 2. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you. What's he glad about? 
He's glad that he's going to be sacrificial offering. He's going to die. He is glad and rejoicing that he's going to die because he's being poured out as a drink offering for them, for you all. You see, when I read this, it says, hey, you know what? Death should not be able, death cannot stop my joy, my rejoicing, because even starvation that leads to death means I end up with a father and a family and a resurrected body and a new creation with joy unending. And if death doesn't end my joy, then nothing else can. I can be content. Look at chapter 3. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And all my struggling through anxiety and depression and my struggles to try to kill my sin, my struggles to try to be content, try not to be jealous, as I struggle, Jesus is holding on to me. He is holding on to me. And so when I begin to let go, he's still holding on. Man, if y'all are in, doing our gentle and lowly studies in your D groups, wasn't that an awesome illustration where, where the dad's holding the kid's hand and they're going to the deep end? And what, what happens to the kid's hand? But the kid's hand, he, he, he kind of grip begins to fail a little bit. Don't matter. It doesn't matter if that kid's grip begins to fail because I got him. And it don't matter how deep we go, I ain't letting go. And in the same way, when our grip on Jesus begins to slip, his grip is tighter still. Amen? Y'all with me? And so we can rest knowing he's got us. Look at chapter 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, a prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And what's going to happen? Peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. I can fight my anxiety and my sadness and loss through prayer and thanksgiving for the gifts of God that he has given to me, and he will grant me peace that surpasses understanding. I can face hard, difficult days because God is going to give me a peace that doesn't make sense logically. It surpasses understanding. And so in the struggles, God is there giving me peace so that I can be content even when I'm starving. God, give me strength because I'm hungry right now. My tummy's growling. So you can go back and you go back and you read through the book and you make note of everything that could apply to help you be content. I highlighted 14, I'm sure there's more, and you meditate on those things. You think on those things, you apply those things, you practice those things, you believe those things, and you battle toward contentment because of what you've learned by what Paul has just taught us, now to be content. Learn truth from God. Secret to contentment, you've got to look to Jesus for strength, but then you've got to use that strength to fight for it, and then you've got to learn truth. You've got to learn truth. My fourth observation about this, does not about how to have contentment, doesn't come from the text immediately, but rather comes from my meditation on the text. When you are studying, it is helpful to, to memorize it and to sit in the quiet and to focus on it, to think on it, to mull it through your mind, to pray through it, and to see where the Lord will take your mind. For me, I thought about all of these things that I just learned rereading Philippians. All these 14 promises or, or thoughts or truths that I learned that, uh, that can help me fight contentment, all these facts. And I thought, the devil knows these things. The devil's read this book. He knows these things, and the devil's not content. And so it's not just the mental ascent to knowing facts that brings contentment. It is actually the difference is not just knowing them, but believing them, cherishing them, knowing them deep, not just in my mind, but in my heart and soul. Holding on to them, clinging to these truths. 
Believing them is what connects me to them and helps me have contentment. Not just knowing them. We must go further than awareness of the truth and the promises of God. We must believe them and cherish them. Believe and cherish the promises of God. So you got to know them, then you got you to believe them and cherish them. So all of that is what helps us primarily fight for contentment when we're down, when we're experiencing loss and hardship, when we're brought low, when we get bad news, when whatever's going on. I can look to Jesus for strength. I can use his strength to fight for it. I can learn truth from God. I can believe and cherish his promises. But what about, what about when things are going well? Sometimes we assume that we need to learn contentment only when things are going poorly because we think that when things are going well, contentment comes naturally. We think that when I am being blessed and I've got a lot of money and I've got a great job and I've got a great family and I've got a great car and I got everything's going great, that can, I don't need to be content because I've got everything I need. And so contentment just happens naturally. I don't need to fight for it. Right? But that's not true. That's not what Paul says. He says, I learned the secret to contentment. I know how to be brought low. Right? He says, I know how to be brought low and abound in every circumstance. I've learned the secret to facing plenty. That's negative. Or, or Plenty, positive, and hunger. Abundance and need. Not just when things are bad. I've learned the secret to contentment when things are good, when I've got everything I need. When everything's going great. I know how to prosper. I know how to have abundance. I know how to have plenty. You see, because here's the difference. Contentment, as Paul was talking about it, is not worldly contentment. It is not being satisfied whether you have a lot or little. This is Christian contentment. It's contentment in Christ. What does he say? I rejoice in the Lord. It's contentment in the Lord. I rejoice in the Lord. Not in the lack of money or having money. In the Lord. So how do you rejoice in the Lord and not in the, not in the how do you rejoice in the Lord and not in the abundance? How do you rejoice in the Lord and not in the abounding? How do you just in, uh, rejoice in the Lord and not in the plenty? How do you rejoice in the Lord and not in the things that you have in a given moment that might be taken away at any second? Well, let's look back at the things we've learned. You go, chapter 1, you're, you're, you're going back and you're reading it. What does he say? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is what? To live is Christ. To die is better. To die is gain. To die is more. So when I live, I live for Jesus. When I die is when I get more. When I prosper, it's not now, it's later. And what is Christ? You look at chapter 3. Oh, this is, this is good. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. This is wrong. I'm at this typo. Don't look at that. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the why is everything, why is my prospering, my money, my job, every positive thing in my life, why do I count it as loss? For the surpassing worth, worth of knowing Christ, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. All things are rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What is valuable in this life and in the next what is valuable in this life to live? Christ is valuable. What is valuable in the next life? 
Christ, surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. He is worth more than anything. We should be savoring and cherishing and clinging to and spending time with and valuing Jesus above everything else, or how we say around here, we make Jesus essential. And when we do this, when we see that he's the most valuable thing in the world, we take everything else from me. You can take everything else, but leave me Jesus. You can have this world, but give me Jesus, and I'll be okay. The New York Times ran a story a few years ago, and it, it interviewed uh, 10 people who had just finished an internship with the best chef in all of New York City. And that chef, a part of his internship, he said to them, when you interned for me for the next six months, you are only allowed to eat the food that I cook, nothing else. No stopping at McDonald's on the way home. You eat what I cook and nothing else. And so for six months, they eat breakfast, lunch, dinners, and snacks on what this chef of chefs cooked. And at the end of it, they were all interviewed about the experience. What did you learn? How did it go? And do you know what they all said? They all of them said, it ruined us for anything less. Foods they used to love now tasted like trash because their palates got so used to the best of the best food, they couldn't settle for anything less anymore. It was his goal. When you see Jesus as he is, truly most valuable thing in the world, when he is of ultimate value, when he is all satisfying to you, when you cherish him, he will ruin you for anything less. He will ruin you for the things of the world that seem to promise to satisfy you. And so when prosperity begins to make your heart cling to the things you've accumulated, you look to Jesus and find contentment, not in the stuff I have, but in him. The all-satisfying Christ. And so the things of earth melt away. They cease, the things of earth cease to have real value because when you have Jesus, he's the most valuable thing in the universe. Everything else looks like trinkets. So how do you have contentment even when you're prospering and have plenty? When you know the superior value and enjoyment of Jesus, the world loses its power to addict you to its pleasure. When you know, not just mentally, but deep in your gut, when you know the superior value and enjoyment, he's not, he's not boring. When you know the enjoyment of Jesus, the world loses its power to addict to its pleasures. That's how we have contentment. Whether things are going poorly or whether things are going great, my contentment isn't based on the things that are going poorly or the things that are going great. My contentment isn't because I've got everything I need right now. My contentment is because I know Jesus. And he brings me contentment. So let's sum this up real quick and we'll be done. Our rejoicing is in the Lord. And Paul wants to make sure he's heard correctly and that his words are not taken wrongly. And so he wants to make sure, indeed, I knew you were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Don't take me the wrong way. Understand what I'm saying. And then he goes on to say, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned, right, he learned it, whatever situation I am in, to be content. This joy leads to contentment. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, whatever situation, whatever circumstance, those linked together. I have learned the secret. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So what is 
What is, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I, me who does it, right? I can do, I can do anything. I can do all things through, through Jesus. X means Jesus. Through Jesus, he strengthens me. What is the all things? Not throw a touchdown pass. I can be content and have joy in the Lord in abundance or in need, in hunger or in plenty, in every circumstance, in every situation. It's his strength through me. The all things is whatever situation I'm in, I can be content. It's not the ability to throw a touchdown pass or pass a test or anything else. I, I can do all things through Christ. So I can be content in every situation. When I throw the touchdown pass and I win the Super Bowl, I can be content. Or when I don't even make the, day, the team because I'm terrible at the sport, I can be content. Happiness. Boy, is a fleeting thing. Happiness taken away in a moment. But joy. Joy in the Lord. Now that's forever. That's forever. That's lasting. That's joy that's so deep-rooted that nothing can shake it. Because when your joy is rooted in the Lord, you will be content in any and all situations, no matter how high you climb or how low you fall, because the most valuable thing in your life is Jesus. And he is constant. He never changes. He never moves. He never fails. He never leaves. You see, this verse is so much more, so much richer than people think. And it's more than just a verse on a coffee mug. Because when context is king, the truth comes out. No one modeled contentment better than Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, left his throne and left heaven to become a man. Jesus gave up everything in order to suffer with and for us so that he might deliver us. And so the only way to try and to, to, to find true peace and contentment and joy in this life is to know the one who is of supreme value. To know the one who is of more valuable than anything you could ever obtain. And if you know him, and you grow and you cherish him, you grow in contentment, but if you do not know him, if you don't know him this morning, come, taste and see what the fuss is all about, and he will ruin you for anything less. Let's pray. God, this morning we're thankful. We're thankful for promises in your word. We're thankful for truth in your word that tells us real things, real promises that we can latch on to and hold on to. A promise that no matter what we face, when we face really difficult days or we face really good days, that we don't have to go on an emotional roller coaster of ups and downs based on how life is going in that particular moment. But we can rest and trust and have peace and contentment and joy when we are eating at five-star restaurants or when we don't know where our next meal will come from. We can have joy and contentment and peace and enjoy life when we throw touchdown Super Bowl passes or when we don't make the team. Because our joy is based in you. Because you are most valuable. Father, this morning, two prayers. One, if we know you, give us contentment. Give us your strength and teach us what we need to know that we might be content in all of life no matter what it, what, what it throws at us. And for those in this room who do not know you, help them, give them the strength to come taste and see what the fuss is all about. Taste and see that you are good. If you're here this morning and you would like to pray about anything in your life or about coming and trusting in Jesus for the first time, you want some questions about that, 
I'm going to stand up here to the left while we sing, come, let me pray with you. Come, let me talk with you about those things. I promise I'm not scary. I'd love to. It would be my joy. God, give us the strength to respond that we need. In Jesus' name, all those people said, stand and sing together.